What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Life After High School, the number one podcast in Sudbury, where we dive into the lessons learned, the losses, and the lifestyles of the amazing guests by asking them the skill testing questions, critical thinking ones, and the ones that get the answers you need to help you be a bit better every single day. Thanks for tuning in. I love you guys and enjoy the show. Everybody, this one's a big one. Lynn Cox joins the show. And if you're not familiar, she is an American long distance open water swimmer, motivational speaker, author, overall inspirational person to everybody she talks to. She is best known for her swim across the Bering Strait on the 7th of August, 1987. But before, what was crazy to me is before she was 60 and she had already set world records, which is crazy to me. She dives into how to start planning impossible goals and how to actually achieve them. We dive into that. We dive into people and experiences she had that were a little crazy when she was traveling around the world, doing all these amazing challenges, being the first woman to do a lot of these things, and then the first person to do a lot of these things as well. So that that's really cool. We, we dive into that. Stay tuned and enjoy the show. It's the Life After High School Podcast. Lynn, I'm very excited to chat with you today. Um, I've done uh, copious amounts of... Uh, whether it be research or more just like fanning over what you've done and your accomplishments. And it's very, very incredible. And I can't wait to pick your brain to hear your story and to hear what you got going on. So thank you very much for doing the show. I really appreciate your time. Thanks very much, Glenn. I'm really happy to be talking with you today. Fun. Awesome. I'm excited. So are you able to take us through kind of your story or your timeline from kind of like late teens, early 20s to kind of where we are now, that journey from like, life after high school like that era time frame to kind of where we are now and then we can kind of go through and go back full circle if you don't well mind. i think that really the important thing was that at 14 i decided i wanted to swim the english channel and so i set that goal and wound up swimming English channel at 15 and setting the world record for men and women and yeah. that was my goal i achieved it i was so excited about it but there was a guy from massachusetts named davis hart who was yeah. an open water swimmer and he swam the English Channel in that same year, and he swam about 20 minutes faster, so he broke the men's record. But I really, really wanted to continue doing open water <laughs> swimming. And at that point, there, you know, the English Channel was the epitome. Mm -hmm. So I went back when I was 16 and broke his time again. And then I realized that, you know, you can spend your life doing the English Channel. That yeah. there are other things that have never been done. Right. or have never been done by a woman. So that was what I started looking at was Cook Strait in New Zealand because there had been three men who had succeeded and there had been a handful of women who had tried, but there had been no woman who had succeeded. Right. So um, I went to New Zealand. <laughs> I bought a plane <laughs> ticket. It was, yeah, well, I trained really hard, but I thought it's going to take me five hours to do this 10-mile swim because that's my pace. Turned out that after five hours, I was further from the finish than when I started because the currents were so strong and the weather was so bad. Oh. So it was really, really a surprise <laughs> and not a good one. No, that must be tough. I can only imagine. Yeah. Discouraging well, almost. It, it was way beyond discouraging, but I had a great crew and they kept me going. And then people from all over New Zealand started calling out to the radio station to then pass the message to me on board the support boats. Oh, but them, yeah, it was incredible. It was like it was just this whole 
group of people all over New Zealand calling and saying, we believe in you, keep going. So throughout the day, the afternoon, the early evening, until 8 o'clock at night, people were calling out and saying, keep going. And so finally, at, it was 8.02, so it was 12 hours and two and a half minutes. I completed the swim and expected it to be five hours. So it was wow. fantastic to complete it. And, yeah, I um, bet. It was great. <clears throat> and then from there, I went on and did the Strait of Magellan. First person to do that. Swam around the Cape of Good Hope. First person to Jeez. do that. And then do swims, uh, a series of swims around the world in 80 days. The highlight was a swim that I did um, in in Iceland, in Lake Neva, where the water was 40 to 42. And I was just trying to figure out what I was capable of doing in cold water. Right. And then uh, from there, I did a swim across the Strait of Gibraltar, the first person to swim from Morocco to Spain. Oh, and, yeah. Um, right. Eh? That was really, really exciting because there had been people who had attempted it. And there was one person that swam it in a shark cage. But when you swim in a shark cage, you get a toe. You get towed by the cage. And so uh, I didn't yeah. want to swim in a cage because I felt that that was cheating. It is. In it my, does. Yeah. In my You're getting. Looking at yeah, yeah. It seems that way. It's like like wearing a wetsuit to do these cold water swims. <laughs> the challenge Amazing. the cold. You know, uh, yeah. Like, yeah. It's like, okay, let's do the Tour de France, but take out all the hills. You know, it's, it's you know, it's not quite the same yeah. without the hills. You can't alter so, the conditions to make it easier. The conditions right, are what make those challenges what they are, right? Exactly. In fact, there's a friend right now who's planning to do Alcatraz, or he's doing it this weekend, and he wants to do a double. And he was really concerned because he heard the water was suddenly 10 degrees colder than he expected, Fahrenheit, at mm. 10 degrees Fahrenheit. And so he was sort of freaking out. And I said, well, remember that this is a really challenging goal because you've got the distance, you've got the current, and you get the cold. Yeah. And a pool swim, they could say, okay, you got to go double the distance now. And he's done the single distance before. But I said, the real big component is the cold. So mm -hmm. if you don't feel like you're capable of doing it, then do the single way. Go right. to the double. You know, and come back when it's when it's doable for you. Because you're not risking your, your life in a pool with the water temperature. But you could be risking your life in the open water because of the water temperature. Mm -hmm. And so you really have to know yourself to know if you're safe or not. And you have to have a crew that you really believe in that's watching over you to make sure you're okay. Yeah. I have a question for you. What makes a crew, and I'm sure you probably had hundreds over the years, different ones I can imagine, not all the same, but what makes a good crew to you? Like, what are the key components that there needs to be on that boat to make those swims or challenges you do like successful? First, it needs to be lean and mean. Because the smaller the crew, the less dynamics are going to happen personally, but also right. less problems. So there, are, and also they need to be experienced. You can't have right. like your brother's friend's sister suddenly that you've never met in your life come on board the boat. And I've had this happen with with people that have gotten in touch with me who've wanted to swim swims, and they will suddenly invite their mother and father and aunt and brother and all these people that have never yeah. been on a boat. So instead of having a support crew there, they have people that are seasick the whole way across. So uh, the swimmer in the water is worried about what's happening with the crew. So it shouldn't be you that have way. to have, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. But I mean, I won't tell you her name, but I'm <laughs> thinking 
Wow. It was really important for you to find people that were not only capable of helping you, but had been on boats before that mm-hmm. knew that they would see sick. But I also always have a doctor on board because there's always the possibility of something going wrong physically. Mm-hmm. And also I have a person that's able to jump in the water and pull me out. I have people there that are all, all about logistics. So on my crew, I will usually have four to six people. And that's that's it. Um, but the swim in Antarctica was a whole different deal because I was swimming in zero degree C mm-hmm. and nobody had done a mile um, in zero oh, degree C. And so yeah. I had three doctors on board the boat um, that I knew. And then there was a ship's doctor and we'd gone mm-hmm. through all sorts of training to see what would happen if I did go into cardiac arrest. How would they get me out of the water? How would they get me into the Zodiac boat? How would they get me from the Zodiac boat into the large boat? Um, we also had people set up so that they'd have IVs that were already warmed up. So we really thought this through, but this took like two years to think about and prepare for. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to swim in 32 degree water, zero degree C. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's really important to find an experienced crew and somebody that, and people that are willing to work with each other and people that will have, in advance, they'll have an A plan, but they've also figured out a B plan and a C mm. plan. And then if those right. don't work, that they have the ability on the spot to come up with another idea. Mm. You know, so um, I have people that are very, very sharp and thoughtful and are flexible in their thinking um, because this is not a cool swim. You know, what we're doing is is you're really in the environment and it's always changing. Even in training, you know, I was really fortunate because I was able to go visit the Navy SEALs um, in Coronado and watch them train for a book. I wrote a book called Open Water Swimming Manual. Yeah. So I spent two years off and on watching their training. And one of the things I learned from the very start was during their training practices, they set it up like it's a major event. So they have people swimming with buddies. They have a support boat. They have a backboard. They have an ambulance. They have smoke to be able to pull to say there's somebody needing an emergency situation they train like they're going to go into action so i learned a lot from them that you know because of what we do because the ocean and the waves and the wind and everything is constantly changing yeah you have to be of that mindset which that's what's attractive to so many people swimming up in water it's always changing and that's why Mm -hmm. you want to go there because it's not a static swimming pool where you know you're going to get to the other side or somebody's going to be tapping your feet the whole way um so it's it's it, that's what's that's what's really compelling for open water swimmers now then so late teens kind of go you you accomplish the angle the english channel swims and to me that's what's crazy for somebody to wrap their head around is at that age i look and i think of what myself and or even myself, but a lot of people I know kind of what they're thinking at that age and what they're doing at that age. Like what triggered your thought and desire to swim it at that such a young age before we move on in the timeline? I was just really curious about that. Actually, um, I wrote a book called Swimming to Antarctica and I wrote a lot about it, but um, the main, oh, thanks. Thanks. But the main thing was that 
my folks moved us from New Hampshire to California mm-hmm. so we could train the Don Gamble, who was the Olympic coach, U.S. Olympic coach. Mm-hmm. But he was such a great coach. And he I was also coaching at a local university, Cal State. It was called Cal State Long Beach then, but it's Cal State University Long Beach. And he would have swimmers from all around the world coming to train at the Belmont Plaza Pool in Long Beach. And so I was in the slowest lane, but I was watching the fastest swimmers in the world right. train. And so it was incredibly inspiring. Back to your question about team and who do you get on your team? Mm-hmm. Well, I was on a team where it was just like the, the teammates were amazing. And they were gold and several, silver Olympic medalists, bronze medalists, national champions. So I wanted to be like them. Mm-hmm. That was my inspiration. But earlier on, wow. I heard about a, the English Channel from a friend of my mom, uh, yeah. from a friend, my friend's mom who I swam with in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. The mom said, she saw me swimming on a cold day and said, someday you're swimming this channel. I thought, you know, this is really fun and I'd really love to try it. So that was in my head when I was nine years old, but it would take a few years and a move and really great training to be able uh-huh. to start preparing for it. But I also think it was, you know, being around people that had goals, that were motivated, that had direction, really helped me find my direction. And I have siblings who were equally motivated. My brother swam the English Channel and Catalina Channel. My two sisters were on the United States water polo. We we came to Quebec to play in world championships. I managed the U.S. team and played against Canada in Quebec. And that was incredible. It was fun. Yeah. Wow. And so in the timeline of that, um, take us from post English channel swims to I think it was um take us through from there. What happened then? Were you just like, what's the next thing I could do after all after the traveling and after the swimming? Were you just like how I'm I guess what I'm wondering is how are you designing your what's next goals? Like how do you design your goals and how do you come up with that? It was it it seemed like it was all and correct me if I'm wrong, but all driven by like, oh, what's, I can do these, I can be the first or the first woman to do this, right? Like, is that kind of, that was a bit of it. And then I'm curious, I'm just really curious how you kind of set your mind on what goals to go after. Like, I guess your goal setting process. Yeah, I actually was looking at things that people would think would be impossible. Like swimming around the Cape, because could people go, oh my gosh, the <laughs> waves are incredibly high. I mean, they're, yeah. 30 meters, you know, the, the, it's, it's unswimmable. There's two currents that meet there and you'll never get around the Cape. And yeah. so straight of Magellan, the water's three to four degrees C. Uh, but you know, it snows when you do the swim. Is that even possible? So I was looking at swims that were just incredible to even think about. Like, how do you figure that out? How do you, how do you pioneer the course? Who do you get for support? in those countries, how do you reach out to local people? Because they'll be the ones that know anything more than anyone that I would ever know, except, you know, always the local people know. So, but the swims were more than that for me. I really am, and I was super curious about the world and cultures and how people live differently and how people thought differently and what people did in their lives. And so I really wanted to travel the world from being a little kid. I really wanted to see what was out there. And so the swims became the vehicle to do that. And But it became far more than just being a tourist because I was asking local people for their help. 
for their knowledge. And mm. then they became part of the team. And it would be not that. just me doing this, and it would be us doing this together, mm-hmm. which would be so much more exciting than a solo person doing it alone. Oh, for as you, sure. As your, as your mom wrote that book, you know, yeah. this solo slims are not solo. It's, it's, you're never alone. You're together doing it as a team. Yeah. It's but, cool. So I, from a very young age, I was doing these different challenges. And then I realized that, you know, you can be the first to swim the Strait of Magellan, the Cape of Catope, the Gibraltar. You can be the first to do all these different things, but there's got to be something more than that. And actually, my dad was the one that suggested that I swim across the Bering Strait mm-hmm. to open the border between the United States and Soviet Union from Little Diomede to Big Diomede. Yeah, which I don't think, and I'd like you explain for people because ah, cause i have a few questions but i want to ask before we go on to that um and we, we will get to the bearing straight swim because i don't think people understand kind of the magnitude of that swim in that time period and i think that's like the more research i did on that and then as i explained to people i'm like it was when it was like soviet union time right I, it right. wasn't just Russia, which I'm underzealous about that, but yeah, it's a, it's a big, big thing, but uh, I really want to get to that, but I'm curious um, with, you've been to a lot of countries um, and what I'm curious about um, is, do you have any, like, what was a country you've been to where the locals surprised you the most? Wow. Like kind of exceeded an expectation or kind of you expected one thing and then they just certain a different way i'm curious you know i think that each of the swims i've done being an athlete has been so incredible because Mm -hmm. it's opened so many doors and so because of that you're not a stranger to people no they're not really cautious about you so i remember going to swim in lake neva in iceland and this lake hadn't been swum before and it was really cold. It was three to four degrees C and I was trying to swim the length of it. And so I wound up going in the water and coming out and I was freezing cold after I finished the workout. And there was this little old lady from Iceland, from Lake Neva area, who she didn't speak any English and I didn't speak Icelandic. And so she just came out and sort of gave me an extra towel and put it on my shoulders and and sort of clapped and so that was that day and the next day her daughter came and waited for me to finish my workout and she spoke English so she came over to me and said oh, no way. my mom wants to invite you in for a cup of tea and some biscuits so Come on. and can we have a warm bathtub so if you'd like to go take a warm bath first so I took Absolutely. the warm bath put my <laughs> tracksuit on and went into the house and they had lit two long glue candles and they had the tea set up and the and the biscuits out. And no so way. we sat and talked. And the thing was, was that during that swim, I had gotten these welts all over my body mm-hmm. and I was itching like crazy. And I was like wondering, uh-huh. what is it in the water? Yeah. So during yeah. the conversation, the older lady, the elderly lady asked me, you know, don't you get bitten by the knee flies? And I'm like, me flies and then the daughter explained that those were the mosquito larvae and they were in the water and so they were biting me so i'm like oh okay now i know what that is <laughs> well yeah but it was it wasn't a big deal it wasn't you know but so we talked about iceland and we talked about 
how they traditionally cook their food, like by digging a hole in the ground. Mm-hmm. So they access the, the hot, hot water that flows underneath the soil. And they put like bread mixtures in pots and then they cook it in the ground and they will smoke. Um, they don't have any trees. So they'll gather sheep dung and they'll light that on fire to be able to cook their meat over that. So it gets a smoky flavor. Whoa. It was, yeah. And they also you know, they have Icelandic ponies there that are gorgeous, but um, they also eat Icelandic ponies. So it's just like there were things that I didn't know about that, I, that were suddenly by swimming there, I was able to be brought into a home and, and enjoy just a little yeah. bit more of human contact, you know, the connection. Mm-hmm. And what's cool about what you said there is I don't think back to your earlier comment as being a tourist versus in your case, being an athlete going to these places, you would have had a, you may have not experienced that more, most likely not experienced that level of a, maybe that level of a connection with people or had those intimate experiences with like people there, which is absolutely really cool. I remember going to, um, I was doing that series of swims around the world in 80 days. Mm -hmm. I, I was doing a dozen swims, and one of them play- was between um, the Straits of Messina, which is a very narrow, short swim, mm-hmm. but um, in- off the shores of Italy. And so you go from mainland Italy to Sicily. Yep. And so after the swim, I went to Sicily, to Palermo, and I walked into a bank to get some money changed. And there was a guy sitting there in this little area before you, you go into one door, and then there's like a little sitting area. And then you go into another door that's the bank. Well, the guy that was in this little area between the two worlds basically had a submachine gun. So I walk in Stop. and he looks at me and like, oh, like he gave me this weird look. And then he picks up the paper and points it at it and says, welcome. So it was like he recognized me, knew I wasn't a bank robber. And he's like, go ahead, get into, go into the bank. So, but who would have thought there'd be a guy you know, sitting there with a machine gun, deciding whether or not you could go for security reasons. Oh, yeah. yeah. Whether you go in or out. But just open carry machine gun in the bank. Exactly. It was crazy. And I don't know if they, I don't know if it's still done. This was a, this was in 1985. So it was a long time ago. But for, you know, as first of all, it was like, I didn't expect a security guy to be sitting there and I didn't expect him to have his machine gun. Yeah, that's a lot. the story about my swim and so he held it up and pointed to it and said welcome amazing it's that whole thing that being an athlete just Mm -hmm. melts the distances between people and um that's so cool wow like that's yeah that's definitely something to be said with i like your mention like being an athlete and kind of going into these different places with that almost with that aura of, oh, I'm here to, I feel going in though that way kind of allows you to be more open because you almost need that connection in order to be successful. So you have kind of an open mind to, you're more adaptable to what it is versus if you're going as a tourist more often than not, I feel, and this is from like either half my experience and half what friends of mine have told me, but everything seems more planned or just off in a whim like, especially depending on the age, but if you're going there for a purpose and you're like, this is what we're doing, this is where we're going. And then you kind of allow people in on that journey. I feel it makes it, it can just organically create something a lot better 
than if you just go in, like you said earlier, as a tourist, which is really, really fascinating to me. It is really, really cool. And it's exactly that. It happens with a plan. Things get, you're able to draw on other people's expertise and people bring stuff to the surface that you never would have expected. Like when I was swimming in Antarctica, I was trying to be the first to do the Antarctic mile. And I had a crew that was with me and we're really concerned about if I go into hypothermia and I can't use my hands to get myself out, or if I go into cardiac arrest, how is the crew going to get me from the water up over the pontoons of the Zodiac boat? And the pontoons are incredibly high because of the big waves mm-hmm. that they have there. So yeah. we were talking about that. And so it turned out that one of the crew was originally from Nebraska and he was a cow roping champion. So he had a lasso on board the boat. Oh, no way. To, to lasso me. Come on. And so we also had a guy who was a swimmer. We had him in a dry suit. So the, the thing with that would happen would be Dan would jump into the water in the dry suit, swim mm-hmm. over to me. Bob would try to loop me with the lasso. But if he couldn't, then he would get it near Dan and Dan would put it around me and then pull me over to the boat. But again, you know, it's like, I never knew. And I never knew that Bob was a champion cow roper. So these things so you discover about people, you know, really random, but really, really cool. Very, yeah. No way. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Your listeners, your listeners from Calgary are going to like this story. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, man. They're going to be like, oh, that guy. I remember. Oh, I've heard of him. Yeah. Like, oh, man. That's awesome. There's, um, so... Fast forward. Um, what I'm curious about in between all these swims before we get to the Bering Strait um, swim, I want to touch on something, something I've noticed that's happened to me and that I've had many of my listeners happen. And this is a topic I bring up often with friends of mine and mutual friend we were talking about earlier. Um, what happens, I find, is when people focus on these goals and they have these really, really on the surface level, they seem impossible right? Like that's the driving force you're saying is like, they're impossible to do. So I'm going to prove that wrong. Right now, those goals, I find when you put so much hard work, energy, effort, time and dedication into achieving these goals, once you accomplish it, there's like a feeling of like, I don't know if it's either emptiness or you're just what do I do? And then because there's this, I don't know what I'm doing next kind of added, uh, thought going through the head is there's like a depressive state. And I remember like when I graduated college, it was the same thing. It was like, I was college and then I went to Ecuador and then it was Ecuador to out of town working to out of town working to, I went around Europe for a month and a half. So it was like this, 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 this. And then once all that stopped, it was like, I'm in this very depressive episode for a while. And I wasn't sure of like, okay, I had this goal to do this and I did it. Goal to do this, did it. Goal to do this, did it. And then once it was all done, I was like, well, where do we go from here? How do you manage the like in between, like come off of all those big achievements? Well, I think that's a fantastic question. And I think that people who achieve anything in life that's important to them go through those moments of climbing the mountain, reaching the summit, and then sort of dropping down afterwards. Like Mm. now, what do I do? Yeah. So I had that happen, you know, when I did English Channel at age 15, it was my highest goal in life. And it's like, now what do we do? Because so young too. Done it. Yeah, yeah. Sort of like, what do you do? 
but I was really lucky that my time was broken. So I went back and broke the men's record. But I think that what I learned to do is to have that one goal in front of me, but to then use that as momentum for the next goal. So in life, for instance, I finished this book, Tales of Al, yeah. the water rescue dog that, that, you know, I spent two months of the summer traveling all over the United States promoting it. But the idea was that that wouldn't just promote this book, that I have a new book coming out in January that's about a sea turtle named Yoshi. Mm-hmm. So that, that there's momentum that goes on to say that Yoshi, Sea Turtle Genius, this new book, is is the next book. And this is where you go from after you've read out. And so I think that for me, like when I did the Bering Strait, flashing back on that, the idea was to open the border between the U.S. and Soviet Union and promote peace. But I knew that once I did that, that could mean that it's all done. But yeah. I also realized that we need to keep the relationships going. We need to keep friendships going. We need to strengthen those those bonds. Absolutely. So before I even did the straight, did this very straight swim, mm-hmm. I knew that I wanted to try to swim across Lake Baikal, which is Amazing. the like lake in Siberia that yeah. is culturally so significant to the Russians. Yeah. So it's the deepest the lake question. also in the world, right? Exactly. And it's spectacularly beautiful. And so, so what I've learned in life now, based on what I did earlier, is not just to have that one focal point, but to have other goals that, that this goal can carry you forward from. But also, if you find that that goal is not satisfying or mm-hmm. that there have been too many things that impeded you, that maybe it's time to put that aside and go on and do something else that you were thinking about. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you need to have it all in sports or you have to have it all in work or have to right. have it all in life. It's just some things out there that you're thinking about. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's so good because then you can use this, this, this high point as a leaping point instead of a dropping point. Oh, interesting. As like a stepping stone up. Right. Or the, across. Or across, across, yeah. But I also think that it's just human nature. Maybe I'm wrong, but I do think it's human nature to like work so hard towards something. Mm-hmm. And then you complete it. And there's a sense of both fulfillment and of loss because yeah. you did what you wanted to do, but now it's done. But I also think that at that time where you don't exactly know what you're doing next yeah. is a time where you get great growth. It's when things are uncomfortable. It's things yeah. when you don't know if it's right or wrong and you're trying to figure it out, that's where you grow because it causes you that uncomfortableness causes you to think differently or in a new way or come up with a new path. And if it's all comfortable, then, then what do you learn? Interesting. <laughs> I love that answer. Oh, it's good. Um, so we've danced around it a few times, um, but I'm really curious because this is when I tell people, when I was telling people last couple of weeks, right. Um, and when we solidified you coming on the show and I was kind of like telling people that I know and stuff and like, Oh, who you got coming on? Cause I just did my hundredth episode. So that was cool. And they're like, who do you got? Like, what are you following up that with? And I was telling them about you and about the books you're writing and you've written. And they're like, wow. And then the one that always gets the most like crazy reaction is the bearing straight swim just for the, I think for the historical significance. And I want you to take us through that. Like, when did that become a thing that you're like, I want to do this and then take us through kind of how that unfolded, if you don't mind. 
Well, I can I can tell you a little bit, but it's really a very, very long and involved story. It was yes. just 1976. My I had done Cook Strait in 75. Mm-hmm. And in 1976, my dad said, why don't you think about swimming across the Bering Strait? Why don't you look at the map of this region? And so you look at it, and you see Alaska and Canada, and then yep. you see Little Diamond Island in the middle of the Bering Strait, which is the United States. And then you see Siberia, and then you see Big Diamond which is the Soviet Union. And they're like this in the they're tiny little dots in the middle of the Bering Strait. So I thought, you know, how could that even be possible? The water's so freezing cold. And so I started doing research and started reaching out because I just thought I was really worried that somebody would blow up the world. That, you know, growing up as a, a kid in New Hampshire and then in California, we were told that we had we had air raids, that there was going to be a possibility of a bomb being dropped. So as kids, we dove under a desk to prevent the nuclear bomb from killing us. So we were conditioned as kids to be really afraid of the Soviets. And they, I found out later on, were doing the same kind of drills in their country, as if a desk would would save them from anything. Yeah. But but somebody told me it was like, well, it's to prevent the glass or whatever from from hurting you. But the point was, was that I really felt that we needed to figure out how to become friends. We had to figure out how to not have our have our countries in a position where we could blow up each other. And that was what was going on. So yeah. I started training uh, for 11 years. I wrote to everyone I could think of that had any connection to the Soviets and Kept trying. I wrote to Brezhnev and then dropped off in Chinyanko and never heard anything. And finally, Gorbachev gave approval. The swim itself was the scariest swim I've ever done um, for many reasons, but partly it, because the water was two to three degrees C and I was wearing a swimsuit cap and goggles. And we had support boats with great crews, Inuit people from Little Diomede Island. Mm-hmm. But um, the boats we were beside me were made out of walrus skin and they were leaking. And so I was really concerned about boats filling with water or capsizing. Other people's safety. Everyone's safety. Yeah. But it was it was a huge event because this was the first time in 48 years that the border was opening, and there were people from all over the Soviet Union that had been brought out to Big Dummy in the Soviet Union to greet us when we arrived there. But we were also supposed to meet. A Soviet skiff, a small boat yeah. with crew on board that would guide us to to the shores of Big Dummy. And Jeez. the problem was that it was so foggy that we could not see um, where we we're going. And so we kept going forward, but we weren't sure if we were going forward to a shore or if we were being swept into the Chukchi Sea, way to the yeah. north. Oh yeah. So um, so it was. It was exciting, but it was also scary because my fingers were turning gray and I was going onto the border of hypothermia and um, we couldn't see the people we were supposed to meet. And it goes on and on and on and on. Whoa. But it was, it was yeah. exciting and crazy and wonderful. And uh, we did meet sure. And the border was open. And when Gorbachev and Reagan were signing the INF Missile Treaty, President Gorbachev stood up with President Reagan and toasted the swim and said it. And President Gorbachev said it showed how close to each other the two countries are and how our relations are improving. So he looked at that as part of Glasnost, as part of 
giving the Russians freedom. Yeah. And um, that's the way President Reagan looked at it as well. And how does that make you like, how did that make you feel once you were able to process what was happening? Like the aftermath of that? Because that's huge. It was huge. Uh, it was huge to get the border open. And that mm-hmm. was the goal of Lim. And it was yeah. huge to work with the Soviet crew. And then to arrive on shore and be welcomed. That was enormous because, you know, to grow up to be so afraid of the Soviets and to have them piling coats on you and towels and giving you moccasins and having you handing you teacups full of hot tea and, and welcoming you like some long lost hero. Mm-hmm. It was just unbelievable to have that kind of response. And Amazing. the people on Big Diomede Island that were there had been brought up from all over the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So they were elated and our crew was elated. And so everyone was smiling and hugging and cheering and sitting down. And, and there were a few people who could speak both Russian and English. So they Amazing. were translating and um, it was the most incredible day on a beach in Siberia. That's awesome. Jeez, I can't. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. Like, I, I wish there was more technology out in that time, just so that because now everybody's documenting everything. So just ah, oh, I was just imagining yeah. how amazing it'd be to see all the different footage and all the stuff. But I, yeah, stuff like that is just that's incredible. Like that's a. Wow. Now, question for you. Since you mentioned that being like probably one of your scariest swims, you said, do you have a favorite swimming experience or a favorite swim you did out of all of them? And do you have a least favorite or a most challenging one? You know, those. it's interesting because each swim I do is the most challenging at the time I'm doing it. If I hadn't yeah. done... The Strait of Magellan, I don't think I would have even thought about doing the Bering Strait mm-hmm. or later on swimming in Antarctica or after that swimming off the shores of Greenland in minus three degrees C. So it's like I've built upon what I've done before, but I think historically the Bering Strait swim was the most important thing that I've ever done because it did help to change relations between the US and Soviet Union. And as a result of that, People in Germany have told me that that influenced the wall coming down in Berlin. That once people realized that a border, which was called the Ice Curtain, that existed between yeah. Little Diomede and Big Diomede, between the United States and Soviet Union up in the Arctic area, once that happened, once that curtain was melted, people realized that the wall could come down. And one of the things to uh, Gorbachev's benefit, the thing about Gorbachev was that he let it happen. He allowed the wall to come down. Mm-hmm. He could have stepped in and resisted that. Yeah, but he, he thought no. it, was time. it was time for people to have freedom. And that happened all over the 15 republics. So he was a man so far ahead of his time. And, mm-hmm. and it was tremendous to be living during that period of time and to see how people could embrace that openness and, and have the freedoms that they had never had. Mm-hmm. Um, it was astonishing and I think so important because as we see what goes on in the world now and how the world changes, that having had that moment of hope or those three years of, of great hope and change, that that could happen again. 
and and maybe in a more um peaceful way than has yeah. happened yeah hopefully um when you set out to do these impossible things so for example if somebody was like i have this goal or and it seems impossible but i want to do it and they don't know who to turn to they don't know how to start and they come and they find this episode what would you tell them as like a how would you start you're on the path of achieving something that's impossible where do you start or what would you, how would you tell them to start? You asked such great questions. They're really phenomenal. Yeah. What I, you know, thinking about it really fast would be, I would first go to people that I really respect, that I look up to, that I think of as mentors. So my folks were my mentors. They were my parents. They were great people. So often I would go to my dad, who is like an incredibly well-read person. But then I'd also go to my mom, who was really aware of what was going on in the media. And she was an artist. She was a painter. So she thought really differently than my dad. Yeah. But somehow they they were like left and right brain together. So I would start with for suggesting what to do to your friends or acquaintances or people that are listening to the show. Mm. I'd first say reach out to people that you know, that you respect, that that care about you that can give you some kind of guidance. And then I would then reach out to the reference librarian at the local library. You know, it's so cool now that you can just go online anytime, day or night, at least here in the California or in mm-hmm. the United States and reach out to a reference librarian and ask, Hey, I'm trying to find out about 10th century London and who was, who was around then and what was happening. And within two or three or sometimes four days, you'll have incredible sources, not yeah. just from libraries here, but from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And, and figure out how to access them. So I think for me, for doing these projects, it's always about doing tons of research first. Mm-hmm. And then so that you can actually, like you did, before you even did this interview, you did all sorts of reading, you told me. Yeah. And you did stuff about me mm-hmm. to be able to even ask the questions. So I think that that, when you go in with some kind of information and an eagerness to learn and a desire to do something yeah. you really want to do, I think people tend to help you out you know i was awesome isn't it like it's weird it's awesome and it's incredible because i think that people feel that same drive within themselves Mm -hmm. anyone that's successful started out just on the same playing field i think i didn't think they they didn't start out the race ahead of everyone else never you know we're we're all the same starting line and and i think that you know how you train and who you reach out to and who you make as part of your team and Mm-hmm. who you, you know, I was reaching out to for the Bering Strait, people that were in um, in music, people that were any kind of connection with the Russians or Soviets back then to figure out who do I reach out to. And then it was, you know, embassies and assistant secretaries of state, yeah. secretaries of state and people like that. You know. Wow. That's fascinating to me. I think it, yeah, I think there comes with, if you put a lot of time and energy into something. And I think with goal setting is a big thing that gets overlooked. Everybody's so focused on like, I need to do this. And then once they do it, it's like, well, now what? It's like the, the goal doesn't kind of make you unique. I believe, I think it's the activities and the actions you take in the, during the process to achieving it is that's what makes you authentic. And that's what makes you, you. 
right? I think at least with when it comes to doing things, it's like if I did the exact same swim or any of the same swims you did, well, the process of me doing it is what's going to be different than actually swimming it itself, right? Like the goal was like, oh, it's just a check mark. But actually, it's like the activities I did or the activities that kind of lead up to it, I find are what, if you don't enjoy doing that, then the goal might not be for you. I mean, so I'm trying to understand like how to pick the right goals and what to do next and kind of falling into the lane. Like, it seems like you picked swimming or it was like kind of chosen or upon you, you took it. Um, Why do you think it was like, was it just like you've been swimming forever? You just got a knack for cold water. Why do you think swimming was the one that you're, you found the lane in to be an extreme adventurer, extreme swimmer in? I think it was because two things. I was so bad at so many other things. I was really bad at running and and lifting weights. And I don't know. It's all overrated stuff anyway. Yeah. Well, I was, but I was really good at swimming and it was something, this is it. It was something I really enjoyed, you know, something that I love to do. And I think mm-hmm. that that it's easy to have goals and do something when it's something you enjoy doing it. If it's something you don't enjoy, don't you do know, it. it's just going to be awful. And my, yeah. my husband's an amazing pianist and, and he's a singer and he sings opera and he wow. played piano like four hours a day. Mm-hmm. And I took piano lessons and I love to hear piano and I love classical music. But I do not love to practice. And so at one point I had to choose between do I want to play piano or do I want to swim? It was a really easy decision. (laughs) I know that swimming was my thing. But I think back to you and your Mm -hmm. question, that whole process is sort of, I was thinking about what you're saying as you were saying it. And so I've written eight books now. Actually, a ninth book is being considered. Mm -hmm. And each time I've written a book, it's been a different process. Mm-hmm. Each story is different. So each time I'm writing the story, I'm writing something new. I'm writing it in a different way mm-hmm. because I don't do factory writing. You can't no. read my first book, Swimming to Antarctic, or, or my second book, Grayson, and go, oh, they're the same. Yeah. There'll be elements within it that are similar, sure. but they're they're not the same at all. Mm-hmm. Tales of Al is very different than Swimming to Antarctica. So I think, yeah. though, that when you're doing something new for yourself, you're going through a new process and the story that you're creating, if it's a book or the story of your mm-hmm. own life, is different. And that's again where the where it's interesting and you're learning something. Otherwise, you're factory writing or you're swimming in the channel over and over again. And for some people, it's great. And that's what they really want to do. Yeah. They want to swim it 30 times. They want to swim it 35 times. And the conditions are different every time. Yeah. But but you know, but for me, it's like, there's so much more to that. It's like, I've been to Dover, I've been to France. I love them. I'm glad I went, but I'd like to see something different that I haven't seen before. Nice. So the process is what's really intriguing. And what yeah. you discover along the way, I mean, like when you're writing a book, you can't, you can't, you can't put everything that you've discovered in the book. Never. But you can put it in you. You know, you can carry it with you. Uh... Interesting. Thinking that you have to do a goal is great, but there's all this stuff outside that people don't really even talk about. Yeah. That's part of this process and the journey that's just as valuable as what you sift through and put in. 
So I'm glad we we're segueing this way. So when it comes to first foremost, where do you get your inspiration for writing from? Is it just a matter of telling like certain stories that come into your life that you want to tell or is yep. it? Yeah. Yep. yep. Amazing. Uh, the, the new book that's coming out in January is called Yoshi Sea Turtle Genius. And it's about a sea turtle that was probably born in Australia mm-hmm. and was caught in a fishing net and wound up being rescued by Japanese fishermen and then spent her a majority of her life growing up in an aquarium in South Africa in Cape Town. The story was told to me, or just the outline of it, by a, by a friend from high school. And so she said, this would make a children's story. It'd make a great children's story. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, yeah, it would. And then I started doing research over like two years' time to be yeah. able to write the short children's book. The same thing with Tales of Al. Mm-hmm. I was watching, somebody had said to me, hey, have you seen those dogs that leap out of helicopters in Italy into the lakes and ocean and rescue people? They pull people to shore. And so I thought, no, I haven't seen it. I got to do it. So I went online and suddenly I saw Newfoundlands and Labradors and Golden Retrievers, all kinds of breeds of dogs, lots of Canadian breeds of dogs, Amazing. Um, <laughs> jumping into the water and pulling people to shore. And so I thought, I've got to go to Italy and see That's how they the train the dogs. Ever. So you witnessed that. I witnessed that. I didn't see the helicopter leaps, but I yeah. saw the, the progression, the, the whole thing like you're talking about, the process. So wow. I got a chance to watch the puppies training and then the adult dogs wow. and then the golden retrievers and the Labradors and the Newfoundlands and Italian Spinoni, all these different breeds, German Shepherds, all these different breeds of dogs. They were training with their owners at the school in Italy to learn how to rescue people in the water. And the thing about Italy is that a lot of people aren't trained to swim in Italy. Yeah. So, and there aren't a lot of lifeguards along the beaches of Italy. No, so the, no, I noticed that when people, I was there. There's people and their dogs volunteer their time and patrol the lakes and the coastline of Italy. And they also work with the Italian Coast Guard and the Air Force and a variety mm-hmm. of people to make the water safe and so i just thought i love it when people do stuff for other people that give up themselves like that that put themselves out there that train that really work but but also i was so i was so like wondering you know do these dogs want to do this i mean does that newfoundland want to jump out of that helicopter or is it being forced to do it you know is the labrador happy to leap off the boat and and pull somebody to shore or Uh. Interesting. Is it going to be scolded for not doing what the um, owner or the, the trainer wants the dog to do? So yeah. I really wanted to see how do they train these dogs? And is it like positive reinforcement? And is it like we train as athletes? Yeah. You know, do we have great coaches or do we have coaches that are just, you know, I remember um, assistant coaching the men's water polo team at UC Santa Barbara. And there was one coach that would throw chairs in the pool in anger if his team didn't do well. And I remember another coach that would slap his players over the head with the guys, the guys team. And I just thought, this is just wow. not the right way. That's the eighties though, right? Yeah, that was the eighties. <laughs> right. It couldn't, it couldn't be done now. No, but, no, no. Oh done. no. Still, there are still coaches though, that verbally 
are not kind to the to players. And I can get yeah. it. There are times where you want to say to player, like, wake up, pay attention. What the heck are you doing? Yeah. What do you think? You don't need to berate them and and use foul language because no. that just sets it up, you know. So the point was was that I got a chance to go to Italy and see how incredibly so well cool. these dogs were trained. And you know, uh-huh. the other part that's been so exciting is there you may have heard of him because he did so much of his filming for the X-Files, Chris Carter. Oh, he came yeah. to Vancouver and filmed nine seasons of the X-Files. And he's a triathlete and a really good friend. Yeah. And he's written a script for a new movie about my life. And so it's been so incredible wow. to be working with him on the script. And so to cool. now be at a point where he's, he's beginning to... Um, send it out to production teams to see who will like who would like to do it. So I'm excited That's about wild. it because Chris is so creative and he really gets me because you know he was a surfer, he was a swimmer, he understands what it's like to do incredible things and have mm. big goals and to go a different way. I mean, yeah. the time he went to Vancouver to um, film the X Files, nobody else was really going there and doing film. You know, it was Amazing. like way before it was being done, and now it's like that's what people do everywhere. You know? Yeah, every yeah, every business yeah. there's for that. Wow, that's so cool. Oh man, that's really exciting. Jeez, I am thrilled. I'm thrilled. So we're now at a point where we're we're now at that next step, and so I can't wait to see what's next. Wow. But um, but the I think the biggest part is that it's so humbling, but also such an honor to be able to share some of these incredible stories and they, you know, these are, these are things that I did, but I could never have done it without all these other people that, that shared that vision that put their knowledge into it, that mm-hmm. supported whatever it was that I was doing that made it happen. You know, it's, it's so inspiring and so overwhelming in a fantastic way Yeah, to have Share your vision to go, yeah, Glenn, your idea of doing podcasts and reaching people all over the world is so awesome. It's and crazy, isn't it? People, it's really cool. And yeah. it's, you feel like you're doing something important, you know, and you mm-hmm. are. Yeah. yeah, and it allows you to kind of take pride in it. And yeah, like people, my buddies asked me, like, how do you feel? I was like, nervous. It's like, nervous. You've done a hundred, I'm like, nervous because I care. Right. It's like nervous because yeah. you want it to go well, not because you're like afraid or you don't know how to, or you're not prepared. It's a very, very specific, like, yeah, just you want it to do well. You care about, you value your time, if not like the exact same as you value the guests. There's like, this is a time thing. We have a finite amount of it. And that's where like the, the nerves, like, I want it to go well and like the gratitude for people of giving your time and then to something that you've created in your head. Because one day you're like, oh, I want to swim this or I just want to talk to people and see where you can kind of go with something is just it's always been fascinating to me, whether that be with like literature, with books or novels or just athletic achievements or goals and stuff is just for creative projects is just it's cool to see what can be made of something that just starts all stems from an idea. And that's, I think, like a big driving force to this being like, yeah, looking back, huh? I started in a school room like I used to have to show up Lynn like two hours before my guests would so if I were we record at two today if I if I are my time uh, 11 for you I believe yeah 
Um, if we would record, say, at, I would show up at like 9 a.m. because I was doing it in a school and the student rooms, it was like public. You could go, anybody could go in them. So they were always packed. So I'd always have to get two, three hours before the show would start and just sit there for like two, three hours before the guest arrives. And then I'd sometimes leave, get the, find the guests, let them in the room and, or let them in the building. And then they'd come back and my stuff would be gone and I'd be moved out. And I'm like, Ugh. so, so this is nice. Yeah. So to come from that is like, oh yeah, it's pretty cool to see yeah, what can also, be made from an idea. I was just thinking about what you said and what can be made from an idea, what comes from an idea. Yeah. What you do in a way is magic because what you do is you inspire people to think a little differently or to think about something they may have not thought about before. Mm-hmm. And so just in the conversation, there's there's things that come up that people share about their lives, about what they've yeah. learned about wisdom and how that's passed on. And I think that all of us are in positions where we need that, mm-hmm. need that, Absolutely. that we learn from each other, you know, and that we... um we're able to make our lives richer or in the ones of, of friends and family around us. Yeah. You know, just because we share this time and, and think about what we're talking about. Absolutely. I appreciate that. It's it's really cool to see everything kind of how things can manifest from just, yeah. Starting from kind of, Oh, I want to tell that story. And then to see like all the, to hear you say you got to like, you got to watch the training process of these rescue dogs and how everything kind of, comes together like just going to italy to see that after just like oh i want to tell this story and then all of a sudden going that and then seeing how it's kind of affected people when everything's published is like oh that's that's cool must be so rewarding too to like get the feedback as well once everything's out you're like oh do you have a moment or a piece of feedback that you got on something you did that was just where I guess what I'm asking is where like a story touched somebody in a way that you didn't expect, or you got a piece of feedback that you kind of didn't expect that it would reach somebody in that way. You know, I've had a lot of that happen with swimming and with swimmers and people that, you know, this generation, the next generation, the prior generation, they'll have questions and I'll be able to talk to them or they've read my book and it's helped them out. But just recently I got a message um, about Tales of Al because there's a big part about the dogs learning how to jump out of aircraft, but it's also Mm -hmm. about courage. It's about swimming. It's about people. It's far beyond just the Italian dogs. When I initially read the story, it was, I was most interested in the dogs. And then I realized there was so much more to it. So the the email that I just got a couple of days ago was from a man who had just gotten, he had just um, adopted a, a border collie. And so he had extracted a paragraph from Tales of Al and wrote it to me to say that this is exactly what I want to be able to do with my dog, where we work together, the bond becomes Mm -hmm. so strong, our trust is so strong together that we can pretty much do anything. And I'm paraphrasing what I said, but that he took that, internalized that, and now is looking at that of how he wants to create this incredible friendship with his dog and and through that friendship trust wow. and through that the ability to do all sorts of stuff was wonderful i mean because you know you just don't know that's the other thing that's so wonderful like what what you're doing mm-hmm. you don't know what you're going to say or your guest is going to say never it's going to really. impress somebody and and resonate with somebody that's listening mm-hmm. and help them figure out whatever it is they want to do yeah and that to me is like that's the gift 
I mean, that's what's so special about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That you may you may hear from them, or you may never hear from them, but mm-hmm. you're touching people's lives in an extraordinary way. Oh, and it's amazing. Really, it's really cool. Amazing. I yeah. appreciate that a lot. Wow. It's yeah. something like I find that's what's cool to me about um, stories in general, whether it be the medium through like novels and books or whether that be just the medium of like digital this way, but how stories are able to connect us to people who we had, who we've never met before. They don't know us, but they can connect us through the way we tell stories or through something that we do, or in this case, just a conversation between technically two strangers, which all of that is just, it kind of blows my mind that we've just kind of over the years just had different ways of sharing, connecting and telling stories, which is why doing shows are so fun, which why I can imagine you're going to keep writing and keep exploring, keeping creating as well. Cause it's just, it's so cool to connect that way. Like, it's yeah it's just awesome it is it's so cool because we you know if we had just met in a park and then we said hello we'd probably just say hello and that'd be the extent of it but we've come together to talk about things that we think are important and that uh, would be interesting to other people or Mm -hmm. first of all it's stuff that's interesting i think to you and then from there it's like okay then you talk to your buddies and say hey is this interesting? And then mm-hmm. from there you go out. I mean, that's, it's really great to have friends, isn't it? <laughs> it's amazing. It's so isn't fun. It it's so fun. Yeah. It's cool yeah. to see kind of like the ripple effect of the connection. And then I find what's cool too, is like, if, especially with like the case of me with guests or strangers and is if I'm very, very, very passionate about an episode or a conversation, because usually like I'm very, very picky with people I talk to on the show mainly because it's like if I don't find you interesting I don't really I I need to right I need to be but it's I'm either not at all or I'm like I want to know everything right so that's this case so it's cool because then they see that passion like oh who you got coming on next I'm like yo take a second and listen to this like I I had a handful of people over last night um and I was telling them because one was like oh how's the podcast going I'm like yo guess who I'm talking to tomorrow and they're like, oh, oh, no way. I'm like, yeah. So being able to kind of share that passionately to them kind of makes people really interested as well. So it almost sells the episode, for lack of a better term, before it starts, which I think is really cool. Because then it revolves around like, yo, you're telling the story. You're passionate about what you're writing about or what you're doing. It People gravitate towards that, right? And like if you have an energy that's contagious for what you're doing and the projects you're creating makes people want to be a part of that. Right. And that's really, exactly. that's really cool. And then the other part I think is that, you know, for me having friends to bounce stuff off of, to say, uh-huh. Hey, I'm thinking about going this way, or I'm thinking about asking that question, or I'm thinking about, you know, okay. So there's, there's a lake in upstate New York called Cuga Lake. And right now the only way to access the lake is through a state park. And, but you can't, unless you have property or you have a boat on the lake. Oh, interesting. So I wanted to go swimming in the lake and almost got arrested because I wound up swimming outside the lane lines because I wanted to swim along shore. Of course. So I'm starting to talk to friends and say, wait a second, this is not democratic. This lake is huge. It's 40 miles long. Yeah. And it's about, you know, anywhere from a mile, two miles wide. 
And so why is it only that people that live on the lake and that have boats can get into the lake legally? Yeah. It isn't fair. So I'm starting to talk to friends saying, how can this be changed? Because in England, for instance, mm-hmm. there's a right to swim, there's a right to passage, so that if you want to oh, go into a waterway, you can cross private property in certain areas to be able to get into a lake or waterway. I don't know if that exists in Canada or not. Whoa. It'd be interesting to find out. Yeah, I'm going to look that up. Yeah, because there are a lot of places in the United States now where there are private lakes. But it's like, wait a second, this is a this is a part of the country. And why, yeah. why, you know, if I didn't have friends that lived on this lake, then I couldn't access it to swim. Yeah, that, that seems seem weird. Like, it seems really weird. Yeah, so, I would think, like, I get the not being able to, because we have that here where I'm, where you can't, like, it, it's not a public lake but what that kind of means here is like you can't you can only put a boat in it because there's no public like docking i guess right there's no public launch sorry thank you that's the word no public launch so you can't just back a boat in the lake and go but parents were swimming that the other day so it's like they, yeah. whether they're friends on the lake or not they're still able to swim in it but yeah it would seem weird like i can i get the not being able to launch a boat fine but yeah, I don't understand the not being able to swim. Yeah, in. see this look this lake is called Cougar Lake and it's part of the Finger Lakes in upstate New York. And it's one of the oh, most beautiful oh. lakes in the United States. It's amazing. Yeah. And so my husband and I went there and I decided I wanted to go swimming, but there was an area that was just roped off. Like you could swim maybe, I don't know, twenty strokes at the most, and then you have to turn around and go back. Because yeah. there was a lifeguard there and that's the area the lifeguard was guarding. And I'm like, no, I swim channels. I want to swim <laughs> along shore. So as I started getting in the water and started to swim along shore, I swim heard people channels. yelling at me and I like ignored them. Yeah. And it turned out that if my husband hadn't talked to the park ranger and to the cop and to the life, two lifeguards, I would have gotten a ticket for leaving shore there without, because it was a, it was a national park beach. And so they, it was all about liability. And so I said to my husband, you know, I just want to go swimming. Yeah. I don't want to have somebody else responsible for liability. me. Liability. And I don't feel like, how how else can you access this lake? Yeah. If you don't, because there are rules where if you have a place in the lake or if you have a kayak or a boat or whatever, you launch it from somewhere else, mm-hmm. you're allowed to swim in the lake. Right. But if you, outside the lane lines. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So it's one of the things that I'm talking to my friends about to say, wait, the people in Britain have figured it out. You know, maybe we can figure out in the United States how yeah. Why can't we? The, the water can be used. And so I was wondering if the same thing's happening in Canada where you have people that live mm-hmm. in a certain area around the lake and then it's just forbidden for you to go into it. It's never forbidden like that, though. But the public launch thing where you can only put a boat in if you have somebody on the lake. So same thing, but boating instead of swimming which seems funny that you're like yeah the liability reasons like do you know who you're talking to yeah yeah well that's all that's funny though and like uh, and everything's about liability and to me it's just like wait i'm an adult i'll do i'll sign a waiver i want to swim where i want to swim you know you don't need to watch out for me i can swim 10 feet offshore and be fine yeah i'll I'll figure it out I'll figure it out. But they, that's, I don't know. That's so funny. So they, 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 this has become a big issue there in the United States because there's all sorts of 
things going on with with rivers as well, where oh. there are sections. The rivers are supposed to be open navigably for people, and you're supposed to be able to fish and go in boats. Yeah. But apparently, there's now a situation where there are areas where the rivers become privatized, so you can't legitimately boat river boat river raft or fish there. So um, it'll be interesting to see if. Canada has adopted what Britain does, like the right yeah. to passage. And at some point, it'll happen here in the United States where we'll be able to be guaranteed the right to passage to get into a lake. Yeah. I'll I'll let you know. I'm going to look into that a bit more later. Um, yeah. And I'll yeah. let you know. I'll email that to you. That's crazy. You know. Yeah. It I'll is. email Steven. It's That's like, interesting. How much, how much of Canada is under, like, how much of the laws of Canada, we're getting way off track, but how much of the laws of Canada are under what the laws of Britain would be? How much of it's similar and how much does it change? Yeah. Like, you know, Cause I know we're all kind of like um, the Western society, right? It's kind of all basically loosely from Britain. And then we just kind of developed, I guess their own, our own ways of doing things that are similar. Like we kind of, we rhyme with what, Britain kind of does like they do something then we kind of either adjust to it or we make our own little changes which is it's weird but yeah I'll look into that and let you know that's uh but also it could be, it'd be interesting if there's a there's a thing about French law as well because you're so influenced by French law as well I that's mean right. it's both so yeah anyway I'm just curious interesting no <laughs> no I'm curious yeah, yeah. too Jeez, that's a yeah it's interesting but I think yeah, uh, France. I got a weird taste in my mouth for France because whenever, when I was in Paris, there was, yeah, I don't know, Paris and Quebec, it's all kind of, I know it's different, but it's, anyways, it's, uh, yeah, they're not, usually everywhere I've been where I try to speak the language, because I've, I've been learning Spanish for a while, I could speak French and I could speak English, but usually when you go to a country and you try to speak their language a bit, they are very welcoming, right? Like, oh yeah, like they try to let you like speak the language with them a bit. And f France and Quebec are not that way. Interesting. Like, Interesting. Yeah, which is... Well, we, when we odd, were in but... Ottawa, when I was in Ottawa, I just thought it was incredible that there seemed to be such an embrace of a variety of cultures and the mm -hmm. linguistic... I, I hadn't expected so much French being spoken in Ottawa. Oh, it's and, crazy. And, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's cool because you have such, because you grew up in this dual language, you can mm -hmm. go to France and be able to speak. It might not be totally correct according to what they no. want in Paris. Don't just go to Paris, go somewhere else. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> no, the mountains, are, well, more south was better. It was just in that one spot, but everything else. Yeah, people are usually pretty friendly too. And like you said, with locals, but yeah, so kind of shifting. Um, do you have a like a quote or a piece of advice that somebody gave you when you were younger that has kind of stood the test of time or something that you can remember that or like a lesson you'd like to kind of share that stood the test of time yeah i think i think that so much of what i've done in my life is my dad would say, like, he, my dad or my mom would say, have you thought about doing this or that? And I'd look, think about it and I'd go, you know, I don't know if that's possible. or That seems like it's really hard. And my dad's comment was, well, have you done your research? So to me, it was like, you can base everything off of what do you find out about it? What is possible based on what you've done the research on? 
So those things that seem like just impossible, like the Bering Strait seemed to me impossible. Yeah. But then I started training for it and got into colder and colder waters. I started figuring out who do you reach out to, but that all came from doing research. So I think for me, it's yeah. doing research before you judge whether or not it's possible. Yeah. Wow. Start asking questions. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, that opens up everything. That's so cool. Wow. So, so simple of a response to like of a statement. Yep. And then just like, well, have you done your research? And you're like, okay, okay, okay. And then do it. And you're like, wow. I can, I almost wonder why that's that kind of, I don't know if it kind of just educates you on like what is possible. Like, well, this is this. And then you can actually do it by going here. I don't know. I find it just informs you. It might just educate you more on why it might be possible. I don't know. I'm trying to understand. Yeah, the connection yeah, it's, it's like, it's like everything that I've done has been about doing the research first. I mean, mm-hmm. and sometimes, you know, the swim in Antarctica took two years to research. The Bering Strait took 11 years, you know, and, and that research was not just looking up things in books. It was talking to people, it was calling them. It was, mm. it was, writing letters it was getting telegrams off it was eventually emails it was so much work Mm -hmm. but it was basically the more you work at it the more you start to see the possibility Mm -hmm. of what it is you want to do or the impossibility and then you adjust what it is that you're thinking about i once had this eight-year-old boy uh, after a lecture in, in iowa come up to me i'd spoken to a general audience and he said what do you do when you've tried something over and over again and you haven't succeeded. And he was like eight years old. And I was thinking, what is it that you've tried and just haven't succeeded? But he was so serious. And I said, you know, as if I would know a great answer, but I basically said, I would just think about what you did and what worked and what didn't work. And then I'd think about the things that didn't work and go back and try to fix them. If I wanted to, because I might decide that I don't want to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. But I've learned what I wanted to learn now, and it's time to move on. Or Uh, maybe I can fix those things that didn't work, and Mm -hmm. maybe I can go back and try again. But I said, first, you want to think about what it is that's not working, you know, and and see how you can change that. But that was an (laughs) eight-year-old. Very wise young man. He is. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I wonder what he's doing now, <laughs> 20 years later. Amazing. Do you have, um, as we kind of conclude, do you have any like last pieces of um, wisdom or lessons or things you like you personally want to tell the audience before we get into the uh, conclusion? I think that the biggest part of life is to be able to do the things you love doing and that uh, it's always something that fills you with energy when it's something you love doing. But doing that is not always the easiest route. The stuff that I've done in my life, most people are looking at me just going, oh, why are you doing that? You know, what's yeah. important for that? Why are you thinking that way? Or the other thought was, that's stupid. That's impossible. No, you can't do it. No, 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 no. So I think that what's really important is to gauge what you want to do, to seriously think about it, 
to bounce your ideas off your family and friends. Mm -hmm. If you have people around you that are totally negative, which I've had some really negative people around me, you let them go. And then you surround yourself with people that are like-minded, that understand what it's like to really put yourself out there and to believe in your dream and your vision and your willingness to work toward it and to realize that you're not a mainstreamer, but Mm. you've chosen not to be in the mainstream. You've chosen to go in your own way. And that's what really makes life exciting. Amazing. Amazing, Lynn. Thank you. Um, Do you, where can people find you? Where can people connect, see what you're doing, check out your projects, purchase books, read your stories? Where can uh, where can people find you? I'm rolling out the red carpet for you now. So Oh, that's that's so nice, Glenn. So they can just go to my website, lynncox.com. So it's www.lynncox.com, and it lists all the books, all the swims, my background. Uh, there's a whole segment about the new movie. And um, I have so a book that's now in a manuscript form that is off to the, to the editor. So um, my next book is, is After Tales of Al, is uh, the Yoshi Sea Turtle Genius. And then there may be another one after that. Um, which I think a lot of people saying it's the best ever. So we'll see if that's the case, but we'll, yes. but first I hope that people will enjoy, you know, the other books and, um, if they really want to get a lot of background swimming to Antarctica, will give them that kind of window. Amazing. Awesome. So I'm super grateful you were able to give me your time this, uh, morning afternoon for you. So I, yeah, just, I'm really grateful and really thankful and yeah, I really appreciate your time, Lynn and, uh, Steven's time as well. And, um, yeah, I look forward to following the rest of your career as well. So thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it, Glenn. And I look forward to following what you're doing and finding out more about the Canadian system about the lakes in Canada. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I'll uh, email you later and let you know. I'm really, I'm really intrigued. I'm really intrigued. Yeah, you'll have a whole people talking about that. That would yeah. be fascinating. Yeah, no kidding. That's interesting. Yeah. But yeah, so yeah. thank you very much. That's uh, that's awesome. Okay.